You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. It's December 16th, 2021. It's 7.38 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And this is the last class of the year. The next uh, next Thursday is the 23rd, and we're, we're uh, shutting down the office on that day at, uh, in the afternoon. So uh, we'll be out until uh, the new year. Let me look at, look at that date. So we'll be back again on the 6th of uh, January. And I thought since uh, it is the holiday time and many of us are probably going to be engaged in that uh, activity of family that we might talk about that tonight and then maybe do some meta practice uh, for uh, friends and family as a, as a practice to guide us into that. Um, I come at this, you know, I have been uh, estranged from my family since 1994, so it's a long time. And we sometimes uh, uh, hear about estrangement from families. It's, uh, it's, it's much more common uh, than I, I had initially thought. Uh, maybe a third of families have some member that's estranged. Uh, uh, and often in the, the conversation about uh, estrangement in families, it's um, about how to repair the relationship so that you can come back in. But uh, I think that there there is also the the uh, some attention to uh, relationships that are unrepairable, and so that the estrangement is in, in some ways permanent. I know in my uh, work, uh, uh, particularly on the attachment side of things, it's quite ordinary to encounter uh, estrangements that have been uh, decades long and have no uh, light at the end of the tunnel in terms of any kind of repair. And when when they go on for that long, you really lose a sense of who the people are and what has happened to them and it becomes quite uh, distant distant. Uh, um, and why you would make that decision to separate from the family, it's often uh, painful in itself to make the decision, but then uh, less painful than the engagement in in the family, uh, depending on what uh, the circumstances are. So we have that extreme of the, the family bond not holding at all and all the way to a family experience that's warm and supportive and loving. Um, when we talk about uh, attachment as part of this, uh, we do grow up in family systems and we learn the attachment conditioning or the attachment strategies that the family uses. And then we, we develop them for ourselves uh, if we look at the, the 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 studies of the general population, what we see is thirty percent of the population is secure, twenty uh, percent is dismissing, twenty percent is preoccupied, and thirty percent are disorganized. Uh, 
there's a high correlation between some kind of uh, physical, emotional, or sexual trauma uh, that re results in disorganization. And that could be in the family or not in the family. Sometimes when uh, there's abuse, stranger abuse or abuse outside the family system, you don't have a family system that's resilient uh, enough to uh, hold the, the space for the, the child to repair. But if you look at it that uh, from that perspective, 70% of people grow up in, in family systems where the circumstances were uh, difficult enough that they didn't form secure attachment. Uh, one of the statistics that always stood out for me is that um, you, you need to meet a child's needs 30% of the time or more in order for them to grow up to be secure. And so if you think about the childhood conditions where less than 30% of the time where the child's needs actually met, <coughs> you have an understanding of how, how difficult those experiences were. And so we can come into this uh, understanding of uh, family and returning to family, uh, if that's actually what's on the table um, uh, for people that don't come from secure family systems of having been difficult. So I say this as a as a um, opening of uh, compassion uh, for for uh, people who are uh, born into difficult family systems. Uh, Christian. I don't want to derail too much, but I'm curious if there's any research or, or any credible ideas on whether the rate, the rates that you just cited about um, like secure versus the different insecure attachments, if that's changed significantly over time, if we're living in a time where there, there's more insecure or if there's any research about that. What I would uh, probably talk about there is um, resources. Um, people who grow up in resourced families have a much higher rate of security than, than kids who grow up in families that are economically challenged. Um, so if you look at the statistics of, uh, if you don't exclude for poverty uh, in the research, it shows that 65% of kids are secure 15% are dismissing, 15% are preoccupied, and 5% are disorganized. So part of it is the um, whether or not the child worries about the basics, which are food, clothing, shelter, medicine, and nurturing. Um, you don't have to grow up necessarily in a loving family, but you have to have really predictable care. Uh, that's what produces security. And in family systems where there's a lot of financial stress, the, the predictable, predictability of care is less certain. And the further down the economic scale you go, the, the greater that stress is. Uh, I think that in the early uh, studies at elite universities in this country, they intentionally excluded for poverty because poverty was so highly associated with insecure, disorganized attachment. Um, one of the things about uh, living in a society where healthcare is for profit 
is that it really only caters to people that can afford to buy it, like most things. Um, and so that there isn't much uh, effort uh, behind providing services for people that need them uh, based on their needing them. It's based on their ability to afford them. <coughs> and so I think in a lot of things that we do here, we just exclude people who can't afford them and, and they're not of interest uh, nor are their needs of interest to us because uh, they can't uh, um, buy the services. One of the things about insecure attachment and disorganized attachment is people who have that function less well. Um, organized attachment versus disorganized attachment, there's a big uh, difference. Uh, secure people, dismissing people, preoccupied people, if they're organized, do about as well in terms of functioning and people who are disorganized function much less well. So you, you, the way our system works is the people that are in most of need of, of the care receive the least amount of care because they can't really function well enough to secure the resources that they would need to get it, get the care that they need. Um, so as to answer your question, in, I would think that uh, as the economic inequality in our society grows, that that would be uh, have an effect on on the, the numbers. There's only one society in the West that has uh, much lower numbers, if you, which is uh, Russia, which has nine percent secure instead of thirty. Um, but their system is, you know, lacking political freedom and also economically more more unequal than our system. And they have all of those uh, um, constraints, uh, supply constraints and whatnot. <coughs> but you did grow up in the family system you grew up in, and you are, uh, if you're going to go back visiting them, back into the uh, system that you grew up in. And um, I often recommend that you go uh, as if it were an archaeological journey to discover uh, <laughs> the conditions in which you grew up. Um, you know, I part of this is the, 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 the idea of blame. Um, if you have insecure or disorganized attachment, you likely uh, uh, got that from your caregivers because they didn't solve that problem for themselves, so you could blame them. You have an 85% chance of um, uh, uh, <coughs> inheriting the attachment strategy of your primary caregiver. We we pick the caregiver uh, who we want of the of the adults that are available to us. Um, The secondary caregiver, of course, is supposed to intervene on our behalf if they see that it's going off the rails. But in insecure, disorganized family systems, we often have a failure of the secondary caregiver as well in terms of that intervention. Um, but you know, your parents also have an 85% chance of inheriting their attachment strategy from their primary caregiver. And so then we would have to turn our attention and focus the blame on our grandparents, uh, 
they didn't solve the attachment difficulties, ha handed them off to your uh, parents who then handed them off to you. But they also have an 85% chance of inheriting uh, the attachment system in the family from their parents. So then we would be digging up our great grandparents and demanding uh, why, uh, to know why they didn't solve the problems. And so I think it's easier to set that process of uh, aside uh, and begin to understand uh, an open and a compassionate way to the conditions that each of those generations faced. Uh, and it is important to make a distinction between a kind of haplessness in I like to call it haplessness um, in child rearing, where you're you're really simply um, intending the best and doing what you know. One of the things that happens in um, child rearing is that, uh, particularly with the first child, is you don't know what you're doing really from experience. Something happens. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've if you have children or you're around children, but you, uh, children uh, are very demanding, and, and often uh, it's a stressful environment with with them. Um, and uh, if you're if you're attempting to understand the experience of the present moment, and you don't know what to do, but the mind can find an example that's close enough uh, where you were the child and your parents were interacting, it easily flips that and you become your parents in the dynamic and your child becomes you in the dynamic and you simply do what uh, you experience being done to you in a similar situation. And that's one of the reasons why it gets passed down. Um, So part of this is uh, when we talk about secure attachment, what we're talking about is autonomy. Um, part of this is when you return into the family system to try and maintain your autonomy so that you can experience what's happening there and not have a, a loss of cognitive function and become simply reactive, but to actually be able to participate from a place of autonomy and a place of uh, of uh, emotional regulation so that you can experience what's happening. Um, and so with hapless abuse, um, uh, where your parents uh, or a parent intended to do the best that they could, uh, even if they didn't, <coughs> we can make space for that. It's only if you had sadistic abuse, which is where the, the caregiver was actually intending to cause you harm, that it's different than that. Uh, and then there's a question about whether or not you want to return into an environment where there's sadistic abuse. Most of the time, I would recommend that you not do that unless there's some way that you can keep yourself safe from it. There isn't much indication that that, that uh, a parent that's uh, a sadistic abuser tempers at all as even as you age and so even in your adult self uh, can be subject to that kind of uh, aggression 
and that is better uh, to step out of. Um, and is often one of the underlying uh, causes of estrangement in families. <coughs> so going home, uh, if that's what's happening or having family come to you and participating in that dynamic and watching it from a place uh, of uh, autonomy so that you can see what actually is happening, what the dynamic is. Sometimes it's harder to see within ourselves the way that we operate, but uh, easier to see in other people. And if you have uh, siblings or relatives that grew up in essentially the same family system that you did, it's likely that they're using very similar strategies to the ones that you use. It might be easier to see them uh, and to evaluate their efficacy in terms of what you want to do. And uh, you can come at this from either a loving kindness metta perspective or from a compassionate karuna perspective. Um, the main difference between, say, metta practice and karuna practice is that metta practice is sympathetic. So it's really an internal experience and compassion requires a empathetic connection to uh, other people in order to create a container. So <laughs> in the Buddhist sense of, of the word uh, compassion, uh, it's narrowly focused on the suffering experience of someone else. So you turn your attention toward open and empathetic experience or connection to the other person, bring your capacity to emotional emotionally regulate to the empathetic experience and in, in that flow of exchange empathetically you regulate the experience of the suffering person and send a more regulated version of their experience back to them which helps them to contain and regulate their experience christian does that empathetic uh experience mean that for the person that I'm sitting across from, they are recognizing that I am like open to them. Like that it's not only like what I'm sending out to them. It's not only like that I'm recognizing their state, but they're recognizing that I'm recognizing their state or is that not necessary? Like, I guess I'm kind of asking a theory of mind question, but. Um. It could be that where they know that you're connected to them. So uh, in, a, in a formal sense, you attune to them and they attune to you. So they know that your attention is on them and you know that their attention is on you. And then you open to an empathetic experience, which is the exchange of emotion. So uh, empathy has three levels. Uh, at least I like to talk about it in that way. Um, the first is the visceral response to the the experience of somebody else's physical or emotion emotional pain the second is the capacity to read uh, the facial expressions of and body language of somebody and to interpret that as a representation of their emotional state or their internal state and the third one is the compassionate empathy where you actually create in your body a facsimile of the emotional experience uh, that they're having 
that you are able to uh, discern. Now, you may think that, uh, uh, how would I be able to discern that? But then you would be coming at that from the perspective of self and not from the perspective of the whole being. You, you probably remember the numbers that I used to describe this from a, the, the study of uh, uh, data rates that the human body can engage in. The conscious mind operates at about 16 bits per second, one six. And the whole um, body-mind system attracts at about 11 million bits per second. So the, the capacity of empathy uh, is an unconscious and automatic process that happens. And then we track it consciously, but it isn't consciousness, it isn't the self-experience that's doing it, it's the unconscious body-mind process that does it. We have these uh, coils, these bundles in our in our uh, brain, which are only associated with uh, uh, animals that uh, live in complex social groups. So we have the 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 hardware for tracking, or as my friend Jimmy would say, the wetware for tracking the uh, the complex emotional. Uh, experience is part of that <coughs> is empathy. Tom? So then the um, the empathetic experience is not subject to that wasp signal from three, whatever, 100 million down to 16. No, the, the awareness of it might be lost, but the activity of it isn't lost. Um, so, you know, if you look wow. at it in attachment terms. That's cool. Yeah, no, that's a good thing. <coughs> Dismissing people suppress awareness of their emotion. And because empathy is an emotional experience, they also suppress awareness of their empathy. So they're not particularly uh, empathetic consciously. But somebody who is empathetic can have an empathetic experience of them, even though they don't have a conscious experience of their own emotional states, and they don't have a conscious experience of somebody else's emotional state. Uh, often they're good at the second level of empathy, which is to read people uh, teleologically, but they don't really feel it. Um, and then depending on how deep the, the limitation is, uh, for instance, if you, if you suppressed your empathy to the point that you did not register the physical pain, uh, uh, physical or emotional pain that somebody might be experiencing that really base level of empathy, then you're, you're less likely to inhibit your behavior uh, if it caused uh, somebody else pain. Where people that are even moderately empathetic who have that level, that capacity, it acts as a, a breaking system. If you do something to somebody and you register that it's very painful for them, most of us would would uh, be inhibited to continue in that expression. Whereas if you don't feel it, it's not inhibiting in that way. Is that making sense? Um, 
but even if you have no conscious awareness of your own emotions and no conscious awareness of other people's emotions, that doesn't mean somebody who, uh, who does have conscious awareness of other people uh, can't read you empathetically. They can't because that experience is, is happening. It's just not conscious. Christian. <coughs> so does the experience or of Karuna require all three forms of empathy? And is that it? Or is, or is there something beyond it that sort of separates it just from plain old empathy? In Buddhism, really what Karuna means is the third level, the compassionate empathy. That's what it, it's actually describing, that you have a felt sense of the other person and that you can hold the experience of that suffering without needing to turn away from it. You know, the untrained mind recoils from painful experiences. And so the reason the practice of Karuna is so important is that you can recognize that habit of turning away from uh, people's suffering and open to the experience of it without withdrawing. Um, if you're uh, capable of uh, consciously experiencing empathy and somebody uh, touches briefly into your pain and then withdraws from it, most of us experience that as rejecting. Uh, and it, it exacerbates the difficulty you turn towards somebody because you're suffering emotionally and you want them to help you with it and they reject you, it, it tends to be exacerbating of it. Um, you may uh, be consciously willing to hold the suffering experience of somebody, but because you haven't trained the mind, reflexively withdraw from them when they turn to you. Uh, and that uh, it often is a source of great conflict in relationships where you think of yourself as somebody who would want to know about the difficult experiences of somebody that's close to you. And you do think of yourself as somebody who would help them if they asked you. And yet when they come to you, you reflexively recoil from them, which makes them feel uh, defensive and uh, 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 it undermines the, the uh, uh, trust between you. So they might be less uh, willing to actually express that to you because they they experience that. Um, some of us uh, uh, have family systems which are quite guarded when uh, and everybody is guarded in the family situation. And so part of this is to open to that, open or hold that container for um, everyone in the family. <coughs> Um, paying real attention to your autonomy, your, your, uh, your self-efficacy, so you don't get knocked over by uh, uh, suffering in the family system. Is that making sense? Uh, uh, you know, you're free to come and go. You're free to uh, restrict information. Uh, I often talk about Dunbar numbers and the A, B, C, D relationship constructions. Above the line, A's and B's you tell everything to, and below the line, C's and D's you don't. And in challenging family systems, often people keep uh, their family members at, at, at D level involvement. So um, do you see your family more often than at the big holidays? Uh, 
have you, you know, taken your ruler out, measured the map, and moved as far away as possible? <laughs> so that to see a family member requires a, a huge effort. So it's often re restricted to short periods of time and and uh, larger gatherings. <coughs> so we we practice this meta is the sympathetic practice and so sometimes that's a good one uh, uh, and depending on how uh, limiting you need to be in, the, in that environment and or compassionate practice um, I'm not of course some family systems work pretty well and family members get along and they're kind and supportive uh, to each other. And that's simply something that, that's enjoyable. But I usually uh, notice in, in the work that I do that uh, um, it, it, it's tending more toward the secure end of the spectrum than it is toward the disorganized end of the spectrum. Christian? Is there a reason, and maybe this is a misunderstanding on my part, but I have the sense that Burmese or maybe Theravada traditions emphasize metta more than, say, karuna, or, or I guess you know, to to make it more personal to 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 your choice, why why is it metta group and not karuna group, say? Um, I think that uh, partly it's because in the West, metta is the word that has become has come to mean the Brahma Viharas. Uh, so that it when when you say metta in the West, it often means all four of them: Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka. Uh, um, <clears throat> You, you know, in my teaching, I don't make that distinction. I teach all four of them together as a, as, a, as a group of skills that you develop that all work well uh, in, uh, uh, in connection to each other. Uh, in the Theravada practice, uh, loving kindness is first, uh, compassion, second, mudita, sympathetic joy, uh, third, and then equanimity is fourth in the Tibetan way of teaching equanimity is first and the others are stacked on top of that. Um, I find um, all of them are useful and they all should be developed. Uh, and I think that we need to pay attention to our relationship to ourselves as part of that and that we need to be kind and loving toward ourselves. We need to be compassionate toward ourselves, understanding that uh, we have an 85% chance of inheriting the attachment strategy of our caregiver. And that uh, if we if they have an adverse attachment outcome, we're gonna have an adverse attachment outcome. And there needs to be some compassion around that. There wasn't a failure in learning the attachment system that the family offered. You learned uh, as a good student what was there to learn. 
uh, your your caregivers did not resolve their attachment issues, and so they just passed the 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 bundle along to you. And you, uh, we all now uh, really, it's quite an extraordinary time for this, have the capacity to do something about it in a way that will actually shift it. Uh, whereas it, you could make a case that really before the last uh, five or seven years, there wasn't much you could do about it. So that may in some ways burden us more because now there are effective means of repairing this in a way that wasn't really available before. Um, and so we have an obligation uh, for that. Um, so if you are going to go home and spend some time over the holidays uh, with your family, <coughs> see if you can go with this sort of openness and kindness and uh, uh, carefulness around uh, them, uh, understanding that uh, uh, excluding sadistic people, that most people tried to do well in the family system and well by their kids and succeeded more or less in that. Um, and to be present for that experience. Uh, authentic. Um, authentic and not unkind. Uh, so that you're, you don't feel compromised in it or, or wounded by it. Is that all making sense? So I just thought we'd do a practice period of uh, a meta practice or loving kindness practice for uh, friends and family. So if you want to go ahead and take your meditation posture. So how did that go? Good. Um, so thank you all for sitting with uh, me and uh, Metagroup this year. It's been a great pleasure to be here. I, I will see you again soon um, uh, next year. The, um, we do have a few things coming up. There's a uh, level one retreat. Uh, there's actually two of them. We're going to do one series on a Saturday and one series on a Sunday, starting in at the end of the uh, January. We're going to do a meditation and an addiction uh, weekend retreat, so uh, a um, Saturday and Sunday in January as well. Let me look at the dates. So the meditation day, uh, um, <clears throat> the meditation and addiction day long uh, or re weekend retreat is the 8th and 9th of January. The um, the first uh, meditation and attachment level one class starts on the twenty second of January, and then the Sunday version starts on the thirtieth of January, and that will go for three weekends, 
every, uh, every other week. We're then going to have the um, meditation and addiction for uh, sorry meditation and attachment for relationships a Sunday the twenty seventh of February and uh, and then Saturday the fifth of March. We have a level two starting in January as well. That's going to be uh, the 11th of January. So all of those things are coming up. Uh, you can find them on the website. Um, thank you for coming and being with us. I hope to uh, practice with you again next year. Uh, I offer the class on a Donna basis. If you want to make a contribution, uh, there's a link for, for it uh, on the website. See you soon. Bye.